to 2 Corinthians 3.18. Go ahead and turn your Bibles to 2 Corinthians 3.18. It will be probably 20 minutes before I actually read it. <laughs> Got a little bit of an intro that I want to guide you in um, as we begin this series. Um, and it, I just think it will be very helpful for you understanding where we're going, why it is, and why we need this so badly in our lives. I've actually been working on and praying over this series uh, for several months at this point. And as I've said uh, a handful of times before, I truly believe that that what we learn in this series, the principles that we learn and learn how to apply in our lives has the power to transform us as individuals, as families, as a church. I believe it has the power to transform our whole community as we, we go out and even transform the world to the ends of the earth. As we behold the glory of God, grow in Him, and go out and reflect that same glory. I believe this can absolutely transform your life because I'm intending it to transform mine as we walk through this. Oddly enough, the idea for this series was born out of a season of frustration in my life. I'm naturally wired to be a problem solver. I know a lot of guys are, and uh, we annoy our wives by that. They <laughs> tell us their frustration, and we say, oh, here's all you need to do. Uh, but I am. I'm, I'm a problem solver, you know. Um, so if I have a frustration, what I am going to do, the way God has wired me, is I'm going to try to figure out a solution, an answer to that frustration. And so my frustration was twofold. First, my frustration was at me. I grew up in a Christian home, great Christian parents, going to church every week, Attended a Christian school all the way from pre-K to graduation. I've been a Christian for, for quite a long time now. I have uh, attended some, some amazing churches. I have uh, a Master's of Divinity degree from a, a great seminary. I was uh, very blessed to attend and, and do that. I've read tons of, grit, of good Christian books. I mean, seriously, tons of books. I love reading Christian books um, about theology, some about, you know, Christian living, some are biographies about amazing Christians who have gone before us. I've been working in ministry for probably, I guess, nine or ten years or so. Three of those years, coming on four, I've been pastor of this church. Preaching has been one of the main things I've been called to, and so I would guess, I don't know an exact number, but I would say well over a thousand times I've probably preached at this point if I combined all the different um, avenues. And hear me, all of that sounded like a brag. All of that is to my shame. Christian home, great churches, seminary, books, preaching, all of that is to my shame because in spite of all that exposure, all that training, all that experience, I find that I still struggle with sin to a great degree and sometimes give way to that sin, give in to sin. I mean, that may come as a surprise to some of you who uh, don't understand 
who God calls to the position of pastor. He does not call perfect people because otherwise only Jesus could be the actual pastor of your church because there are no perfect people. And so I will tell you, my frustration came when I recognized I have all of this going for me, and yet I still lack zeal for the Lord. Sometimes my love for him can be cold, and I just don't even care. Sometimes I find that I love the things of this world more than I love the God who created this world. Sometimes I find that I can be impatient and unkind. I find that I can be selfish and unloving. I can fail at being a good husband, a good father, and a good church leader. And I still struggle with anger, lust, greed, you name it. And sometimes I give way to these sinful allures. And so my question was why? My frustration was why? Why do I have all of this experience, all of these things going for me, and yet I still so often fail? I still so often lack the zeal that I know I should have. Because, I mean, if you think about it, all that is pointless, right? All those experiences, all that training is pointless if it doesn't actually change me in my everyday life affections and experiences and so i started to wonder am i doing something wrong am i doing something wrong in this christian life is there an element that is missing in my sanctification is something missing in the way that i read my bible the way that i pray the way that i do community the way that i do church it made me wonder if i was approaching and fighting my temptations incorrectly So that was my frustration with me. My second frustration was this. The Christians around me. I won't go into details here, but as a Christian pastor, as a family member, as a friend to so many uh, Christians, I get a front row seat to a lot of struggling Christians. I just, I see it. They tell me, you know, whatever. Now, I would say, There are some who don't even realize that they are struggling Christians. But I see it in their lack of love for the Lord, their lack of love for one another, their lack of zeal to share and spread the gospel. I see it, but they don't even know they're struggling. Others have a much better view, a much more clear view of their struggle because it takes the form of outright sin, right? That's a lot easier to spot when, you, when you're, you're giving way to, to sinful longings and, and just struggling under the burden of that, I see it. And all these people, here, here's my problem, my frustration, all these people, as far as I can tell, have trusted in Christ Jesus for their salvation. They have received the Holy Spirit into their life. And for the most part, they have a wealth of biblical and theological knowledge but they are still struggling christians still lacking in zeal still walking in sin patterns of sin and so this made me wonder once again is something missing is there an element that is missing is there something they are not doing right and maybe an even better question for me is there something i am not doing right and helping them find the right way 
So that was my frustration, a frustration with me and a frustration with Christians around me who still are struggling in the same ways that I am. So I hope you see that as not a judgmental or hypocritical, uh, you know, frustration. It is, uh, I see that they struggle with the same thing I do, and I find what I'm struggling with frustrating. And so I'm frustrated that they're struggling with it as well, because I want all of us to, to fully give our lives to God, to fully live our lives for God. And so, as the problem solver that I am, I said, okay, something's not right. Because God gives us many great promises uh, of, of the sanctification, of the love, of the fruit of the Spirit that will be flowing out of our lives. That, Like a tree planted by waters, we will bear fruit. And so, through much prayer, through meditating uh, over this frustration in comparison to God's Word, and even talking with a trusted friend, I came to two conclusions, okay? Two conclusions that were to help me solve my problem. First, I haven't been doing my slides at all. First, I need to be more grateful for what God has already done. I was letting my frustration with, with lack of sanctification overshadow my thankfulness, my gratefulness for what God has already accomplished in my life and in the lives of those around me. I mean, seriously. God has transferred me from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of his beloved son. He has taken a blind man and given me sight. He has taken a rebel and made me a servant, a foe into a friend, made me his son. I mean, this is incredible, new life. I have been born again. And the same goes for those Christians around me that are struggling. Born again, kingdom of the beloved son. This is a miracle. A miracle from God that, that is just unbelievable. Forgiveness of sins, righteousness before God, and even living a new life here and now. And so I needed to be thankful. And that was a sin of mine that I was forgetting to be thankful. To be content is a, maybe a word there. Content that God has given so much. Such a miracle but we all know that being content does not mean you need to be complacent, right? There's a big difference between being content and being complacent. Say you're on a weight loss plan, you, 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 you want to lose 20 pounds and you've lost 5 pounds, you shouldn't be beating yourself up about it, you should be thankful, you should be content that you've done that, but that doesn't mean you say, okay, I'm going back to the way things were. No, that, that would be uh, complacency. You, you want to continue in the fight. And so here's the second thing that I learned. We need to be intentionally beholding the glory of the Lord. We need to be intentionally beholding the glory of the Lord. Because listen to me, we can gain more biblical knowledge. We can attend church every Sunday. We can go to every Bible study and prayer group in the city and still lack zeal for God in our hearts. We can make every resolve. We can be incredibly determined and have a great plan and a great deal of self-discipline, and yet have no more victory over sin. What we really need is, is not... Uh, more Bible studies, not more uh, resolve. What we need is to behold the glory of the Lord. 
We don't need to just learn more about him. We don't need to just try harder to obey him. We need to intentionally fix the gaze of our hearts upon his glory and let all come into our hearts. Paul David Tripp uh, wrote a book called Awe. I've been reading it in preparation for this uh, sermon, just among a, a handful of other books. And he says, in general, we don't have a fear problem. We don't have a sin problem or even an idol problem. We have an awe problem. A-W-E, awe. We are not nearly in awe of God enough. And that is why we don't trust him as our confidence that overcomes our fear. We are not in awe of him enough, and that is why we turn to lesser fleshly things, sinful things. We have an awe problem, and so I'm saying we need to behold the glory of the Lord. To be in constant awe of his attributes and his work in this world, to be satisfied and longing for more of his glory, to behold more of it. This this is the path of true transformation, and that is what God brought to my mind. Specifically, God brought this passage, 2 Corinthians 3.18, to my mind. Before we read it, I, I want to give you some context on this verse, because it's kind of weird to start a, a sermon series in chapter 3, verse 18. <laughs> you know, uh, like, that, that's, that's unusual. So I need to give you a little bit of context here. I'll, I'll ask you guys a question. Corinthian church, killing it or doing pretty poorly? Poorly. The Corinthian church is like not the one you want to be. Like there, there may be like good churches and bad churches around town. And like the Corinthian church was not the one you wanted like your name next to uh, biblically. And there's some other not so great churches. But if I had to say there's one that I wouldn't want uh, to, to be a member of, it's the, the Corinthian church because it was filled with a bunch, filled to the brim with struggling Christians. Struggling Christians. Hmm, that sounds like Jeff. <laughs> that sounds like the Christians I, I was around. And if you were to just read uh, uh, First and Second Corinthians, both written to the same church, it's actually only two of three letters Paul wrote uh, to them, but these are the two that we have recorded in the Bible you would see that the Corinthian church struggled with the sins of pride, jealousy, division, quarreling, sexual immorality, lawsuits within the church, laziness, grumbling, greed, gender identity issues, lack of respect for ministers, marriage to unbelievers, divorce, mishandling church discipline by unforgiveness, accepting false teachers, and a general, general idolatrous love of worldly things. Were they a struggling uh, group of Christians? Yes, Paul had to address all of these things. I literally read through First and Second Corinthians and wrote down everything that Paul is having to address. Some of them he says, you are doing this. Others of them he gives such emphasis to that it's quite clear they struggle in these areas. And so you could do that. You could read through First and Second Corinthians and see that these letters were written to struggling Christians just like your pastor and most likely just like you. So we might think at that point, well, how is Paul going to address these issues? Because if they're such a troubled church, if they're such a struggling church with so many struggling believers, how is he going to help them mature in their faith, grow in zeal, and gain victory over lingering sin? 
And I believe that the answer to that question comes most clearly and succinctly in 2 Corinthians 3, 18. And so this is the verse that God brought to my mind. Literally, as I was sitting there talking with my friend on his front porch, working these things out, I said, I realize I'm not being ungrateful, but that doesn't mean I can just sit there and do nothing about the sin in my life and, and helping those around me. And this verse popped in my head. Here is how true transformation takes place. So let's read that. You don't have to uh, read it out loud with me. It says here in my translation, ESV, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. There you have it. You have it right there. We, the verse says kind of in the middle, we are being transformed into the same image. That's the image of Christ and of God are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. That, that's it. That, that's the, the true, lasting change that we want in our lives. That is what the Corinthian church needed. That's what Pastor Jeff needs, and that is likely what you need. This true transformation into the image of God, the image of Christ. And this transformation, Paul tells us, happens in two ways. First, you see right there at the very end of the verse, for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. The agent of change in your heart, the agent of transformation in your heart is not you. It is the Holy Spirit. The agent of change is not the rules that are put over you, the laws that are in this land. The agent of change in your life, the agent of transformation is the Holy Spirit. This, for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So there we see God's work. Without it, we would only go from bad to worse. But we also see a, a second way that this change happens. Look at the, the beginning of the verse there. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed. So you have the Spirit's work that He is the one who is doing this transforming. But when is He doing it? As we are beholding the glory of the Lord. We see the Spirit's work. We see our, I don't even want to call it work, but, but what we are to be doing. This isn't even a command. This is just a truth. It doesn't say, hey, go behold the glory of the Lord so that you be transformed. This just says, when you're beholding the glory of the Lord, you're being transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit. This is the truth that you and I need I'm sick of trying harder. I'm sick of, of, of just making more rules for myself. And all those things are needed. All those things are necessary. But if they are not fueled by, motivated by the glory of the Lord, they will fall flat. And as we'll get to in, in coming weeks, our, those attempts will actually in themselves be sinful when we try to change ourselves rather than do so by beholding the glory of the Lord. And so this is what we're going to study for the next couple of months. Couple, few, eh, we'll see. 
This week we're going to learn why we should behold the glory of the Lord. This weekend, next week, uh, we'll be, be learning why. Up until last night, it was just this week, but uh, <laughs> very late last night I said, you know what? This is going to be two weeks because we're going to dig in. This is important stuff. We're going to learn why behold the glory of the Lord. After that, we'll start to learn what it is to learn, sorry, to behold the glory of the Lord and how to do it. What do you even mean by behold? What, what do I need to do to behold the glory of the Lord so that the Spirit has this opportunity to transform me? After that, we'll see what impact obedience has on our ability to behold the glory of the Lord. That will be another week. Then after those introductory matters for the first month of this series, after that, we will spend a handful of weeks putting this into practice. We will take select attributes, select works of our great God, our great Lord, and we will behold them. We will search for glory within those attributes, within those actions of God. Because here's what I want. I, I don't just want to tell you God is glorious. I want to train you to see his glory. I want to train you so that you become a glory finder, a glory uh, seeker. That, that when you open your Bible, that when you go to church, that when you step outside and see the sky, you are looking for glory and you are beholding glory by the power of the Spirit and you are being transformed by it. This cannot just be a Sunday morning practice. This must be a day in, day out practice. So I, that will be those weeks that I will show you. Here is what it looks like to see his glory, to behold his glory. That was my introduction. I'm going to pray right now. <laughs> and then we're going to look at one of three points, one of three reasons why we should behold the glory of the Lord. So let's pray together. Father God, thank you for still loving me. Even though you've given me every opportunity to love you with all my heart, all my mind, all my strength, and to love my neighbor as myself, and yet I still fall so short. Thank you for loving me and loving those in this room who feel the same way. But God, thank you for not just leaving us there. Thank you for showing us the path. So God, today would you help us to understand why we should behold your glory. Just a little bit, God. Just give us a glimpse of why we should seek with all our hearts to behold your glory. God, would you do that today by the power of your spirit and through your word, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So my question for today in why behold his glory is kind of like this. Why should I intentionally behold the glory of the Lord above all else? Why shouldn't we just look to ourselves? Why shouldn't we just try harder? Or why shouldn't we just, you know, become okay with where we are spiritually and with our actions? Or maybe why shouldn't we look to other things in creation other than God to motivate us and help us to change? And so again, I have three reasons for that. Today we're only going to look at one of those reasons, but it is an amazing one. Here is that, that first reason. It's a matter of worthiness. It's a matter of worth. It's a matter of worthiness. 
Specifically, God is worthy of you beholding his glory. God is worthy. That's our starting place. Everything else will flow out of that. But without this first part, we, we, that we, if we don't understand this, nothing else will make sense. God is worthy of you beholding him. Because we see there in, in that uh, 2 Corinthians 3.18, we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. What's so worthy about God of me beholding his glory? And I actually have a second question that comes out of that. Not only is God worthy of beholding, what about what happens from me beholding? When I'm beholding him, by the power of the Spirit, I'm being transformed into the same image. So that means as I behold the glory of the Lord, I become like the Lord. Do you see that there? Beholding the glory of the Lord, we are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. And so my question is, do I want to be like God? Do I want to be like the Lord? What's so special about him? Blunt questions. They may sound harsh to your ears, but we got to ask them. Because these, these were my questions when I first uh, started really trying to pursue Christ. Of, why do I even care? Why do I even care about reading my Bible? Why, don't I, why do I even care about going to church? I'm already saved. <laughs> so what's the, who cares? You know, like uh, uh, you can hear my immaturity there. But these were real questions. Why behold the glory of the Lord? Is he worthy? And why do I even want to be like him? We'll just look at that one point. It's a matter of worthiness. It is the matter of worth that the Bible tells us over and over, unwavering, unbending, straightforward, God is worthy of beholding and imitating because he stands alone as the most glorious, majestic, awe-inspiring being in the universe. Hear that again. God stands alone as the most glorious, majestic, awe-inspiring being in existence. There is none like him. No, not one. Well, what are you talking about? How, how was God glorious? I'm going to give you five ways via the letters. So A, we just got to think about these things and be blown away. And trust me, we're going to spend a lot of time beholding the glory of the Lord. So this is just like a little primer on that, these five little ways that God is worthy of beholding because his glory is so great. So A, there is glory before creation. You need to get this, okay? Because it, it blows our minds if we think about it. God was infinitely glorious before creation even existed. God was infinitely, overwhelmingly glorious before creation even existed we read this startling statement from jesus in john 17 5 jesus says this this is uh, the, the the high priestly prayer whatever the lord's prayer jesus is praying to god the father before his crucifixion john 17 and jesus says this to the father he says and now father glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had before the world existed. So Jesus is praying to the Father. He's saying, okay, I'm about to go to the cross. I'm about to do this amazing sacrifice. And what I want is after my death and after my resurrection that you glorify me in your presence. But then he adds this, almost just as a little side thing, with the glory that I had before the world existed. 
So that means that before Christ took on flesh, before his perfect life, before all his miracles, before his his spotless sacrifice on the cross, before his resurrection, before his ascension, he was already infinitely glorious. The triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, infinite, unending, overflowing with awesome glory before we even existed. This is amazing. This will blow our minds. All of eternity past, there was this glorious being when nothing else was. And so God did not become glorious because he created. God created because he is glorious. It is the overflow of his glory. And that is actually our second point. B, glory displayed in creation. God created the universe to display his glory. That's the whole point of everything that is existing, is to display the glory of God. Psalm 19.1, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. So think about this with me. Why is the universe so big if humans only live on this one tiny planet? And we're real impressed with, we send our little rocket ships out. Yeah, I mean, that's like inches in comparison, you know, like to this vast trillions and trillions of light years of universe. Why are there stars in the universe that are far bigger than our sun that we will never feel the heat of them because they're so far away. And that's kind of a weird question, right? Like, I mean, you, you look at scientific books, and the sun is not that big uh, in comparison to many, many of the stars in, in the universe. But even those stars that are so big, so powerful, you think of the energy coming out of the sun, uh, that, that if there's a, what are they called, the wave things, and your stuff goes out? Uh, yeah, like the sun... Electromagnetic pulsar. I don't know. Anyways, make it knock out our whole power grids by the sun burping. Like, what? This is incredible. And yet it's a small one. And there are these ones so far off that, like, they look like a teeny speck to us. And we'll never feel their heat. Why would God create such amazing things so far away that they really don't even impact us? Or how about this? Why are there so many plants so many animals, so many organisms that each year we're, fi- we're still finding tons of animals. Seriously, you can look it up. How many uh, plants, how many animals, how many organisms scientists are finding, identifying for the very first time every single year when just a handful would have been sufficient. I mean, right? I mean, I could have done with five fruits, a few vegetables, and then animals. I'll keep dogs, cats can go. I'm kidding. I just got a lot of enemies just now. (laughs) Uh, You know, a handful of animals. Like, really, how many animals do you need? And then all these organisms that, like, we can't even see unless we have a microscope. Why would God create such a diversity? I'll tell you why on all those things. This huge universe that we're so little. These huge stars that will never feel the heat. This huge variety of plants, animals, organisms. The answer is the universe isn't about us. The universe isn't about the glory of any created thing. The universe was created to display the glory, power, wisdom, vastness, and creativity of God. 
That's why. Trillions of light years away, there's something that makes our sun look like a pebble. That's our God. And he's putting that on display for us. Romans 1, 19 through the first part of 20. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. Glory displayed in creation. God is showing you his worth through creation. I made all this. Look to me. Behold me. And here's something absolutely incredible that Job says. I mean, it's startling almost when you think about the vastness and the, the, the grandeur of this universe that we are in, this creation. Job 26, 14. Job 26, 14. He's speaking of creation. This is Job speaking in Job. He says this about creation. Behold, these are but the outskirts of his ways. And how small a whisper do we hear of him, of God. But the thunder of his power, who can understand? Okay, we need to take a second and just soak up what Job just said. He's talking about how incredible creation is that, that God has made. And then he says, these are but the outskirts. This is but a hint of the glory of God. This is but uh, the window being slightly cracked and the, the light coming through. And he actually says it this way. How small a whisper do we hear of him, but the thunder of his power, who can understand? So that's the idea that, that God's glory is like crashing thunder. And he's revealed it to us in creation in just a whisper. <laughs> and yet it's all this. These trillions of light years, these, the suns, the stars that are just making so much energy, us intricate beings, organisms, all of that is but a whisper compared to the crashing thunder of God's glory. It says, but the thunder of his power, who can understand? If he even revealed it to us in creation, we couldn't handle it. <laughs> He's so glorious. But God didn't stop there. God is not one who just got the top spinning and then left it to see what would happen. He didn't just wind up the watch and walk away. We see glory displayed in works. So we have God is glorious just in his essence even before creation. God shows his glory in creation. Then God displays his glory in his works. I won't go into too much here. But this is the God who parted the Red Sea so that millions of people... The Israelites walked on dry land through the Red Sea. This is the God who shook Mount Sinai and engulfed it in smoke and flames as he came to give the law to Moses and the Israelites. This is the God who crumbled city walls. Joshua in the battle of Jericho. God crumbled walls. How? By the might of, of Israel's forces? They walked in circles around a city and then they blew trumpets. And the walls came tumbling down. This is the God who gave uh, victory over the, these enemy forces. Sometimes, without the Israelites even doing anything, an angel of the Lord would just slaughter the, the enemies or put them in confusion and they would kill each other. <laughs> this is the God who's shown his, his works. This is the God who has continually protected his people 
throughout thousands of years, who, who made covenant promises, Genesis 3.15, and has worked it out all these thousands of years. There's always been enemies to God's people, sons of the serpent, you could say, and God has protected his people. That's God displaying his works, and it, there's so much more there. I just gave you, just a, again, a brief taste of the, the works of, of God. But then we see glory displayed in Christ. Glory displayed in Christ. Hebrews 1.3 says, He is the radiance, speaking of Jesus, He is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the word of His power. 2 Corinthians 4 6, uh, we read that a moment ago, actually. It says, for God who said, light shine out of, let light shine out of darkness, so that's talking about creation, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Jesus was sent to this earth. God the Son took on flesh to display the glory of God. God to us. He did this. He, he displayed the holiness of God by committing no sin, never lacking zeal, never committing uh, any, any unlawful act. Jesus displays the compassion and mercy of God as he heals the sick, casts out demons, makes the blind to see, deaf to hear, and lame to walk. He had compassion on them. And Jesus displays the glorious power of God as he turns water into wine, calms the raging seas, fed thousands with a few loaves, and had the temple tax paid with a coin found in a fish's mouth. It's like he was just having fun with that one, displaying it. Like, oh, we need to pay the temple tax? Hey, Peter, go, th go throw in your, your, your hook and, and pull out a fish, and you'll, you'll find our, our temple tax there. And he goes and does it. I mean, this is the glorious power of our God shown in the face of Jesus Christ. This is the glorious holiness, the glorious compassion of our God, and even the, the glorious uh, justice. He, he, he didn't say sin was okay. He was very bothered by the, the hypocrites who, who acted religious yet had no relationship with God. They, they saw the law, but they didn't see the Lord behind the law. And we'll get into that more next week and uh, the week following. Jesus displayed the glory of God in his very life. But then we have our, our final indicator here. The height of the glory of God put on display for us, at least up to this point in redemption history, is glory displayed on the cross. This should never stop astounding us. Jesus, the holy, righteous, glorious God of the universe, needing nothing from us, creates us, Right? It just said um, in, in Hebrews 1, 3, oh, and he upholds the universe. Colossians tells us that he created. Anyways, uh, <laughs> Jesus creates this universe to display his glory. Then human beings suppress the truth about God. We exchange the glory of God. And we begin beholding the glory of lesser things. Again, Romans uh, chapter 1 talks about that we exchange the glory of god the, the creator for created things creation it's rebellion it's treason <clears throat> against this glorious god okay and so 
well, who's going to save us from this glorious God who, who we have sinned against? Who is going to save us? What hope do we have? God. God is going to save us. And that was, again, the promise in Genesis 3.15. And that is, again, what we see happen in the Gospels. And so Jesus saves us by living the perfect life we chose not to live, by dying the horrific death we deserve, and then bearing the unimaginable spiritual punishment we have all accumulated. You are storing up wrath, it says elsewhere in the Bible, Romans 2. That wrath that has been stored up, Jesus drank that to the dregs for us on the cross. You say, well, I must be pretty special. No, you're a rebel. I'm a rebel. I'm, 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 I'm guilty of treason against my great God. I'm guilty of foolishness. The God of glory says, behold me, experience me, enjoy me. And I say, nah, I'll, I'll enjoy created things. I'll, I'll behold myself. I'll behold these sins. I'll do what I want. But God displays his glory on the cross. Romans uh, 8 verses 6 through 8. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would, even, would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That, my friends, if you understand that rightly, the God of glory comes down, humbles himself, takes on the form of a servant, even to the point of death on a cross. If you understand that he did that for his enemies, that is glory on display. That is the compassion of God on display. That is the grace of God on display. It was there before the world existed, but he put it on display. Why? As the supreme display of God's glory, as the only way glory thieves can be restored to a glorious God, and as the path by which we can now behold the endless, infinite glory of God. Do you understand that? What Jesus did on the cross took you from these lesser things that we love to actually behold this glorious God. He did that for rebels like you and me. And says, believe. <laughs> behold what I have done for you and believe in it. And it's yours. Forgiveness for your treason righteousness before God, and the ability to live this new life now and for eternity. That is glory displayed on the cross. And so we began this sermon, and the title of the sermon is, Why Behold His Glory? And so, so I ask that again. Is, is God worthy of beholding? And do I really want to be transformed into His image? Well, let me say it this way in light of what we've just seen it is foolish and irrational to set our hearts and our attention on anything less than god if god really is glorious from all eternity past and now has now created and put his uh, glory on display and done his works uh, to put his glory on display in Christ to put his glory on display in the cross to put his glory on display it is irrational and foolish to say nah i'm good with these lesser created things and so maybe the real question that we need to be asking is not is god worthy of beholding maybe we should be saying 
our material things. Cars, houses, clothes, trinkets, toys, technology. Are these worth beholding if they're keeping me from beholding God? Are sports worth giving all my attention to when they keep me from beholding God? Are great careers worth beholding instead of God? Are my hobbies worth beholding if they take my attention and my time and my affection off the glory of God? Is beholding sex-charged images, greed-inducing shows, and self-serving books worthy of my time and attention if it is going to rob me from beholding the glory of God? Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. That's the question we should be asking. Not, is God worthy? Not, do I really want to be transformed to him? We should be saying, why am I wasting my time with all these lesser things? Why am I giving them my heart? Why am I giving them my attention and my affection? Why am I obeying them? You are the servant of whatever master you serve. We get that. We, we obey these lesser things. We obey the impulses of our flesh rather than the glory of God. And so the answer is clear. Why behold the glory of God? Well, because our God is an awesome God. Our God is an awesome God. And he is worthy. He is worthy of intentionally setting the gaze of our hearts upon him. He is worthy of seeking our delight in awe of his majesty. And he is worthy of doing and removing whatever it takes to behold more of his glory. Whatever you need to do to behold more of his glory, it's worthwhile. It's irrational not to do it. Whatever you need to remove from your life, it is irrational not to do it because God is so worthy of beholding because he is so infinitely glorious. This is what we'll be continuing to study. That was but one reason, one of my three points that were supposed to be for this Sunday. It was just too good. <laughs> God was too glorious to stop at just his, his or I had to keep going after that and make that one of three points. And there's a lot more glory to see. There's a lot more reasons why we should behold his glory. But let's pray now and ask God to help us apply this first point. Father God, you have shown us today your immeasurable worth. You've shown us that you were infinitely glorious before creation, all eternity past. You've displayed but a hint of your glory in this vast and incredible creation. But a whisper compared to the thunder of your unsearchable glory. And God, you've displayed that glory in your works in this creation. You've displayed that glory in the person of your Son. And God, you've shown us the height of your glory at the cross, taking us rebels and making us your friends by your grace, by your sacrifice, at great cost to you because you are such an awesome God. And I thank you, Lord, 
that we can have that salvation. We can be restored as beholders of your glory by believing in the finished work of Jesus Christ. His death on the cross, his payment for sin, and his victorious resurrection. We need but believe on that to become a beholder, an enjoyer of your glory. As people who can now go out and reflect that glory. Lord, help us to do and remove whatever it takes to behold more of your glory. Help us, help me to quit acting like an irrational fool by setting my heart on lesser things. This I pray in your son's holy name. Amen.